Gold Cord by Amy Carmichael, Prelude to Chapter 7. Dust. God's walking the blue sky roads today. See how lovely the dust of his feet? Clouds of dust, we say down here, as it whirls through our troubled atmosphere. And we walk in the thick of it, but up there, the clouds are the dust of his feet, they say. Do the angels say when they look at the crowd and the crush on the roads of this dusty star as we toil along, not strong, nor fleet, and overwhelmed by the secular, how lovely the dust of their feet? Chapter 7, He Took a Towel Near the little jungle village of Donapur in the old wreck of a compound, haunted by flocks of noisy goats that surrounded the decrepit three-room bungalow. There were four cottages. In these, in the year 1902, the divinity students of the CMS were to be bestowed, and in that house, they were to be taught by one of the finest men the Church Missionary Society has ever sent to India. Life is either a feast or a fast, was one of his sayings. And for him, it was more fast than feast. But ANC stores had broken down. And to his friend, Walker of Tinnevelli, was committed the training of those men. There was no thought then of their staying in Donapur for more than a year. But the children had begun to come, and the children cannot be carted about. So the Walkers made the place their headquarters. And we continued to our great comfort to live with them there. But in this, I anticipate. When the first child came, we were, as I have told, together in Great Lake. But when the burden became so heavy that it had to be taken up, as Chapter 5 tells, the walkers were at home. On their return, they came to Donapur and thereafter made it the center of their work. After the work for the children developed, we understood why this special place had been chosen for our home. It is several miles from the road, and in those days it was even more inaccessible than it is now. So it was not only safer for the children than a town would have been, it was good for us too, for we were free to serve without too many interruptions. It was healthy, that is, for the tropics. There was no malaria. It was beautiful too because of the mountains to the west of the village. These mountains were a wonderful help. They were so unchangeably strong and tranquil and serene that just to look at them strengthened us. Often, caught and tangled in the throng of things, we used to stop and let their calmness enter into us, and we prayed that we might serve with a quiet mind. It was not a question of choice with us now. If we were to go on at all, we must have a quiet mind. We had already seen more than one missionary break down, not because of the climate or the work, but because of a wearied, fretted spirit too rushed to dwell in peace. So this prayer was not for a spiritual luxury, but for sheer necessity. And as the children grew up, we taught it to them and tried to help them also to serve him with a quiet mind so that in all our rooms there would be peace. We soon found that everything must go down before the claims of the children. Everything personal had 
of course, gone down long ago. But now every missionary call had to be subordinated to these new demands. And yet, at the beginning, we were often tempted on this point. The new work seemed poorer than the old. The district where we had itinerated is twice as large as Wales and twice as populous, and far afield opportunities had begun to open, and apart from the ordinary routine of mission work, calls had begun to come from many parts of the Madras presidency and beyond. Could it be right to turn from so much that might be a profit? Evangelistic tours, convention meetings for Christians, and so on, and become just nursemaids? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself. He took a towel. The Lord of glory did that. Is it the bondservant's business to say which work is large and which is small, which unimportant and which worth doing? The question answered itself and was not asked again. It was a foolish question, for the master never wastes the servant's time. Children tie the mother's feet, the Tamils say, and Bishop Paget said, with a venture of faith, there is need of self-discipline and of effort. Babies are truly a venture of faith, and in India, at least, they tie the mother's feet, for there are no nannies here, and we had seen enough of the difficulties of some missionaries who had to use ayas to teach us that we could not be too careful of our children's earliest years. So we let our feet be tied for love of him whose feet were pierced. Once an ICS friend asked us to join him in camp on the Donapur, Donapur Mountains. He had bears, tents, everything ready, he said, but we could not possibly go. His answer to our letter saying so was a huge hamper of maidenhair fern from that delectable camp. We never found that we lost a friend because of things like this. And now, because in many places people were moved by the spirit of pity, as the trees of the wood are moved by the wind, and because of our fellow missionaries, especially in one of the cities of South India, cared enough to put the need of these little ones far beyond their own comfort and ease, a number of children were sent to us, and we were soon so greatly requiring help that I found a round robin to the pastors, asking if they had any women wholly devoted to our Lord and separate in spirit from the world who were likely to be free for such work. Not only have we no women, but we do not know even one woman of the kind you want was in effect the answer of all. And some added, this is something contrary to our custom, which it was a gentle way of expressing frank disgust. It was true. The care of young children is not among the honorable occupations of South India. Once a widow who seemed to be the kind we could use consulted her pastor, but was advised not to offer. Too demeaning, he said. He did not mean it unkindly. He was and is our friend. An elderly widow did venture to come, and we welcomed her with warm hope. 
But one weekday morning at the busiest hour, the village church began to ring its bell for some extra service, and she came to me at once. Her face wore its Sunday expression, and she had her Bible and prayer book under her arm. Five distracted babies for whom she was responsible were on a mat on the floor at her feet, urgently demanding bottles, and because of their lamentations, I could hardly hear what she was saying. I got it at last. I wish to go and do God's work, she said, and left us forward to cope with her five and our own two, and we saw her face no more. God's work meant to go to church and to teach or preach. To work with your hands is not God's work in this part of the East, even though our Lord Jesus worked with his hands in a workshop for years. God didn't make you all mouth, we used to say to such a one. She would turn a shocked and sorrowful eye upon us. All mouth? It sounded irreligious, almost blasphemous. One day, and I happened to be in the middle of writing one of these nursery pages, when I turned to watch a baby play on the floor of my room. In his hands, held out straight in front of him, as though he wanted all the world to look, was the small gray quarterly published by the Officers Christian Union with its name, Practical Christianity, printed in large letters on its face. The boy was smiling, that superb smile of the pleased baby. Practical Christianity had his complete approval. I suppose such a thing existed somewhere at the date of this chapter, but it was very hard to find if, combined with it, what is usually called the spiritual were wanted too. Not that we recognize the distinction any more than the Officers Christian Union does. And so, because we wanted our children to be taught otherworldly ways from their cradles, we were shorthanded. And yet, we had often to spare someone from the nurseries, for now that we were on the track, the journeys to save the little ones in danger grew more and more frequent. There were no motors then to make travel quicker and easier, and sometimes the difficulties were increased by passport regulations in districts where plague was raging. Once a confused telegram told of the little party in quarantine and no way of getting suitable food for two poor babies, did the agitated senders of that telegram look for bottles of milk by wire? And it told, too, of language complications for no one there knew Tamil. But both those babies survived and have grown up to be fellow workers. It was worth that journey with all its vicissitudes to save them, floods, great heat, crowded trains when a festival was being held somewhere. And in South India, there is at least one important festival every month. All these and many other difficulties have to be endured or overcome in such a work. And the sleepless care required is something any mother will understand. Sometimes there were temple scouts on the train. Many a time large sums have been covertly offered for a little child on her way to us. You can say that it died and that you had to get it buried on the way. But we learned to watch for loving providences. And never once were any of us hindered by accident or overtaken by pursuers after a child whose guardian drawn by some large offer of money, had changed his mind. 
nor did any of the threatened court cases, which at first were frequent, prosper. We always got, if possible, a paper signed by the child's guardian before we took it. But sometimes to press for that would have been, and would be still, to risk losing the little one. And in any case, the paper was worthless in a court of law, except to prove our bona fides. It was about this time that a word was given, which was to become like gold, silver, precious stones, and except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, part of our spiritual treasure. It came in this way, a friend upon whose understanding comradeship and sympathy I had counted very much, did not feel able to give either. Someone more suitable should do this special work, she said. How natural that was and how true, for I knew that I was not suitable, but no one else was free to do it. I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. How strangely Bible phrases come sometimes, unbidden, unexplained, perhaps apparently irrelevant, but somehow they still the soul. But fear can hamstring the soul, and presently fear crept up, and a devastating sense of unfitness and in insufficiency. And I saw our tiny company strung out like a little row of knots on a sheet of paper. But thou art worth 10,000 of us, an inadequate comparison, fitting the earthly David, bathos as applied to the lion of the tribe of Judah, and yet it carried truth. What did it matter if we were knots? It was for the Lord our God to write the figure, to head that row of knots. He himself was the figure, and we saw our calling, how that we were truly of no account, like to a shell dishabited, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Nothing any one thought of us could reach lower down than that. No one could ever count us less than we were. But he that is down need fear no fall. He that is down cannot get between God and his glory. And we knew then that there was nothing that he could not do through us if only we were nothing. It was then that a prayer came that we have often used since in our fellowship life. Oh, we're too high, Lord Jesus. We implore thee, make of us something like the low green moss that vaunteth not a quiet thing before thee, cool for thy feet, sore wounded on the cross. And it was then, too, that those fathomless words became our very own. God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. End of chapter 7.